I invite you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 9 as we continue our exposition through the, the Gospel of Mark, just verse by verse, phrase by phrase, section by section. <clears throat> We're trying to move through this fairly quickly because John is the shortest of all the Gospels and he moves quickly through the, the Gospel himself. And uh, we come today to verse 14, but... Before we just jump in there, I think what's important is to remember what we looked at last week in the first 13 verses of this chapter. We saw the transfiguration. We saw the time when Jesus was, was changed. When He pulled back the veil of His humanity and His deity shone through. We got to see His real self. We got to see His power, we got to see His glory, we got to see His majesty. Remember, Jesus, His skin began to glow, began to glow through His clothes even, that He became radiantly white, and Moses and Elijah were with Him, speaking of His upcoming death, coming into Jerusalem. The voice of God the Father thundered from heaven in verse 7, this is My beloved Son, listen to Him. It's really a, a remarkable scene, and we were caught up in that scene last week, but one of the things we might easily miss is that while um, these disciples were experiencing this thing at the top of the mountain, something was happening at the bottom of the mountain as well. And things at the top of the mountain were going really well, but things at the bottom of the mountain were not going so well. And this contrast is depicted nicely in Raphael's last painting. Raphael was a, uh, one of the Reformation, one of the Renaissance preachers. Uh, Painter, he wasn't a preacher, he was a painter, and he painted the Transfiguration. This is the very last painting he did. In fact, he died before he finished it. One of his apprentices did it. And uh, it's right there uh, on the screen. It actually, the original resides in the Vatican. And you can see the two parts of what's taking place there. The, the upper portion, Jesus being transfigured. You can see Moses and, and Elijah there you can see the disciples just even being overwhelmed by the, the glory of Christ and how, how light it is. But yet look at the, the bottom of this portrait. This is what was happening down below on the mountain. You can see a, a, an, an ill child here with his, his eyes open. It's because he was a, a demon-possessed child. He was deaf and mute. And uh, you can notice here how, how dark it is down here. And you can, you can see the arguments. You've got these hands in the air. You've got these fingers pointing. And there's just strife and contention going on. While on the mountain, everything was peaceful and, and serene and wonderful and majestic. Down below, all was chaos and confusion. It's reminiscent a little bit to um, when Aaron, when, when Moses, I'm sorry, was up on the mountain in Exodus chapter 32. And, and he came down to the people feasting and merrymaking and worshiping the golden calf because Moses had been gone for 40 days and they wanted another God to worship. Well, so likewise, Jesus comes down and sees this chaos. And while up at the top, Peter, James, and John were experiencing ecstasy, the other nine disciples were experiencing agony. Let's look, place, let's look at what took place at the bottom of the mountain. Verses 14 through 29. And when they came back to the disciples... They saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. Immediately, when the entire crowd saw Him, they were amazed and began running up to greet Him. And He asked them, What are you discussing with them? And one of the crowds answered Him, Teacher, 
I brought you My Son, possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out and they could not do it. And he answered them and said, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. They brought the boy to him. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion. And falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And Jesus, he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. It has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the voice father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. After crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out. And the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him, and he got up. And when he came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately, why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Now the key phrase, I believe, in this whole section comes in verse 24. When the Father cries out, I do believe, help my unbelief. He was a man tormented by a sick son. He came to Jesus for help, believing that Jesus could help him. And yet, his faith was, although genuine, not so great. He came to Jesus even saying, well, if you can heal him, help us. There was doubt there whether he really could or not. And he came to Jesus, not only as we see here, for help for his son, but also he came to him for help for his own faith. Help my belief. The disciples, the same way. They're in the same boat. They could pray the same prayer. I mean, indeed, they were believing in Jesus, but their faith also was weak. Just think of the instances. They they saw the feeding of the 5,000, yet a little bit later, they didn't believe He could feed 4,000. Or when they were in the boat, they didn't even believe that He could feed the 12. At one moment, Peter tells Jesus, You're the Christ! At the next moment, he is the mouthpiece of Satan telling Jesus not to go through with the plan of the crucifixion. At one moment, Peter tells Jesus, I'm sorry, and they're like the blind man who saw men walking around like trees. They could see, but they couldn't see clearly just like this man. And that's a common thread of Mark's Gospel. He, he wants for us to see the slowness of the disciples and how slow it is that they believe. And this way, this man's statement, I do believe, help my unbelief, is I believe it's very much of a theme of Mark's Gospel. And so it's no wonder that Mark would elaborate on this story. Mark, as you know, is the shortest of all the Gospels. Only 16 chapters. Matthew has 28. Luke has 22. John has 21. And yet both Matthew and Luke 
um, though they are twice as long as Mark's Gospel almost, when they spend time here on this passage, they spend only seven and eight verses. Matthew spends eight verses on this text. Luke spends seven verses on this account. But it takes Mark 16 verses to tell this whole story. And you've got to say, why is that? That Mark, every time he shares one of these stories, is almost always shorter. He, he's not longer. And, and you've got to say, why? Well, I think there's a reason why. I think the reason why is because this is important in, John's, in Mark's Gospel. Because it puts forth the reality of the, the disciples. They were believing in Jesus, following Jesus, but their faith was weak. And they needed to learn from a, a helpless father who said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. And in great measure, I believe that many of us live right here as well. I think that we have a, a measure of sincerity, a measure of belief, and a measure of trust in the Lord. And yet, when it comes down to it, Many of us feel like our faith is weak. I feel that way. And I know that many of you probably feel that way as well. Our hearts can resonate with the hymn writer. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's a God. He has done all for me. He has sacrificed for me. He's given His Son for me. He's poured out His love to me. He has made me His child. He has set me secure in that love. And yet, what can I do? I... I'm prone to to go this way and pursue my own lusts and pleasures and sins. And that is our problem. How, How can it be? How can it be that we who love God can be pulled away so easily? Well, I believe it's our sinful hearts pulling us away from the One we love. And that's why the Father's request to Jesus is helpful for us as well. It is a prayer of faith that we can pray. It's a prayer of faith for faith. It's a prayer to the one who can increase our our faith. And it's from this phrase that really I've titled my sermon today, Help My Unbelief. And and I just hope that's all of your prayers to the Lord. Help My Unbelief. My outline this morning is going to have three parts to it, but I'm going to do it at the end of the exposition. So so rather than telling you right up front what the application is, we're we're going to work through a phrase. And so my first point starts in verse 14 through 19. And we get to verse 19, you'll see the point. It'll just kind of flow from there. Verse 14, when they came back to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. It's the scene that Jesus and Peter and John came down from the mountain. They came down to commotion. A large crowd arguing back and forth. And particularly here, they saw the scribes arguing with the nine disciples at the bottom of the mountain. I think that the picture, it's okay, it's not up there, but Raphael did it well. Fingers pointing, arguing about something. Now, this is what the scribes did best. They argued. They always took the contrary position. They wanted to be the ones who were in the right. We aren't told exactly what they argued about, but we can guess that the scribes, just as they opposed the ministry of Jesus, were also opposing the ministry of the disciples, probably mocking them, probably making fun of them, saying, here's someone, right? Your, your master claims you can heal this. If you're of your master, can you claim this? Can you heal this? Coming back and forth, the... Uh, Disciples were probably embarrassed as we see later taking him privately and wondering how it is that they couldn't heal this boy. But immediately, verse 15, when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to him. When Jesus came down and when they recognized Jesus, the whole focus changed. It was no longer on the Father and the Son and the disciples. All of a sudden, Jesus is in town. And like He always did, whenever Jesus entered the room, He became the focus of, of attention and He was the focus of attention. They were running up to greet Him. 
And Jesus, seeing this, asked them a simple question. What are you discussing with them? I think they're probably talking to his disciples. What are you talking about with them? And the answer comes quickly in verses 17 and 18. One of the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground. Picturesque. And he foams in the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. So picture the scene. Here's this man. He's in a terrible situation. His son is demon-possessed. And this demon is preventing him from speaking. It's even preventing him from hearing, as we'll find later when Jesus casts the deaf and mute spirit out of the boy. will seize him from time to time. Foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth, stiffens out. He's slammed to the ground. Probably means he just falls to the ground. Hits the ground hard with a thud. Convulsions are involved as he writhes around. The spirit will cause him to roll around, sometimes into the fire, sometimes into the water. It's almost destroyed this little boy. This little boy has probably got scars all over his body from the hurts that's been inflicted by this, this evil spirit that's come upon him. But know that it wasn't only the boy who suffered. Know that parents of children who are suffering suffer perhaps even more. Nothing afflicts a parent like a torment upon a child. Um, my wife and I had a chance to get away for our 20th anniversary this past week, a couple of days, and uh, we watched a movie that some friends had given to us about a missionary story about some missionaries to Zambia. And um, just as we were watching this, this movie... Um, there's one point where a little boy gets killed as he's run over by a tractor. And uh, Yvonne just could barely handle it. Just, I don't, if I'd have known, she said, if I'd have known that was going to happen, I would not have watched the movie. Um, and just the, just the suffering of a parent, just even the imagined suffering, I'm sure she's going through her mind thinking about one of our kids. It just, it just depicts for you just what, what a parent suffers when a, a child suffers. Because one thing to suffer yourself, it's another to watch your children. That's, that's when it's the worst in many ways. And so this man hurting himself and, and, and his boy hurting comes to the disciples for help. It was reasonable. The disciples had the ability to help this boy. When Jesus chose the twelve disciples, He appointed them, Mark chapter 3, verse 14, so that they would be with Him and he would send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. I mean, this is why he called his disciples. So to learn with him, be with him, but he could send them out so they preach repentance so that also they could cast out demons. And back in chapter 6, we read of how Jesus sent out his disciples in pairs, giving them authority over unclean spirits. In chapter 6, verse 12, they went out and preached that men should repent, verse 13, and they were casting out many demons and were anointing many sick people and were healing them. And apparently word got around to this father that the disciples were able to help him. And so he asked them for help, but the sad reality is, verse 18, they could not do it. And you just picture what it meant. They tried and they tried and they tried. Maybe they anointed this boy. Maybe they prayed over this boy. Maybe they... They, they hugged this boy. Maybe they held hands. Maybe they anointed. They're, they're trying over and over and over again and this demon isn't coming out of this child. And it must have been disappointing to the father. He'd heard the healing power of Jesus, found his disciples. Maybe he'd seen even the fruit of the ministry of many who were healed by demons. And his son brought to Jesus 
and yet unable. I've read several accounts and testimonies of quadriplegics and paraplegics coming to modern-day faith healers. And, uh, you know, a whole line of people in wheelchairs, you know, hoping to get on that stage to have, to have the, the anointed healer, right, lay their hands on them or pray for them and have them walk home. And, and, and there have been many. And, and you know what always happens? The faith healer leaves before anybody with an illness like that comes because, of course, there's no power in those faith healers. Any power there is demonic. Any power there is feigned, faked. If they really had power, they'd heal people like that. And people often come away disappointed. And and this father must have felt a little bit of that same situation. He had reason to believe that the child could be healed because these kind of people were being healed all over the place. Paraplegics were walking. Quadriplegics were walking. You remember in chapter 2 when the the paraplegics walked down through the, let down through the roof. Right? Blind or seeing, mute and deaf and dumb were being able to speak all this man's maladies. This little boy's maladies were being healed and, and yet disappointing for the father and I think surprising for the disciples. They'd done this many times before. They had prayed or they had healed or they had done something and, and the demons were leaving. In fact, in Luke's Gospel, when they came back from the preaching tour, they returned with joy, telling Jesus, even the demons are subject to us in Your name. They'd figure this thing out. And here, for some reason, it wasn't working. And my guess is the scribes are right there pressing them and pounding them. Oh, you guys think you've got it all figured out. You don't have it figured out. You don't have any power. Fingers pointing at them. You can't heal him. Your master has no power. Why do you think your teaching is so important? Right? We've got the truth. We've got the Scriptures. We've been around. And you say, well, why couldn't they heal? Here's the reason why they couldn't heal. The lack of faith. You see it there in verse 19. And he answered them and said, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? The disciples didn't believe. They were part of this unbelieving generation and thus, in their lack of faith, were impotent to perform the supernatural. Hebrews 11, verse 6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please God. And without the pleasure of God, you're powerless to accomplish things for God. It didn't matter, catch this, how much and what sort of miracles the disciples had done in the past. Without present faith, they did not have the power. They were impotent. See, God isn't looking for what you have accomplished. God is looking for whether you believe today to accomplish through you great things. And here's my first point. Help my unbelief that ministry would flourish. There is a, there's a tie here between the faith of the disciples and the ministry which didn't flourish, particularly in this healing of this boy. And faith is crucial to any ministry. You know, early in my ministry at Rock Valley Bible Church, I, I read a book with another a pastor in town, and it was John Angle James' book, um, An Earnest Ministry, the one of the times. We read about 20 pages together, and then we emailed back and forth and, and just talked about this book. And though the book was written in the mid-1800s, it still has great truth for us today. And here's kind of the, the core of the book. He, right here, right in the introduction on page 28, he quotes the British Quarterly Review saying this, No ministry will be really effective, whatever may be its intelligence, which is not a ministry of strong faith, true spirituality, and deep earnestness. And there was just a British Quarterly Review wrote that one sentence 
And then listen to what John Angle James says about that. He says, I wish this golden sentence could be inscribed in characters of light over every professor's chair, over every student's desk, over every preacher's pulpit, condensed into that one short paragraph is everything that needs to be said on this subject. I feel that every syllable I have to write would be superfluous if all our pastors, students, and tutors would let that one sentence take full occupation of their hearts, possess their whole souls, and regulate their conduct. The most I can hope to accomplish in this book is to expand and enforce it, is what he said. So that little phrase, no ministry will be really effective, whatever may be its intelligence, which is not a ministry of strong faith, true spirituality, and deep earnestness. And he said, I wish that every pastor would place that on his desk right in front of him. Well, that was a decade ago that I read this book. And I have this little sign that is on the front of my desk, my house and my office. Maybe you've come by, you've seen it. It's not real fancy. It's not framed real nice. It's just uh, printed out, Microsoft Word, cut out, and placed just right there. It says that no ministry would be really effective without these things. And just as a reminder to me, day in, day out, of what I need to be as a pastor, as a minister of the Gospel of Christ, in order to see an effective, flourishing ministry. And I just say, may God grant grace to see that accomplished. I think about the ministry of um, the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. I think they followed this. Charles Spurgeon was the pastor. Spurgeon experienced a flourishing ministry. For those of you who know about Spurgeon, you know that he thousands came to hear him preach each Sunday. In the 1800s, his sermons were transcribed and wired across the Atlantic to New York where they're printed and distributed here in America for many to read. He wrote 25 million words in his lifetime, more than any other Christian author has ever written. He established a pastor's college, trained more than 900 men for ministry, 200 churches planted, He was certainly a gifted orator, had amazing memory, had a voracious appetite to learn. But when Spurgeon was asked what's the secret of success, do you remember what he said? Anyone know what he said? Constantly, he said it's quoted many times. Okay, grace is there. That's not what he said. He said, my people pray for me. That's what he says. Which Which is grace. God praying for the pastor and having things... Abundantly abound through grace. Spurgeon wrote in his own autobiography, here's his words. He says, I always give all the glory to God, but I do not forget that He gave me the privilege of ministering from the first to a praying people. New Park Street Chapel is where he ministered first. He came at age 18, started preaching. People started hearing him, though it was a church of thousands before. I think maybe about 1,000, 1,200 before. It had been dwindled down to about 100 he starts preaching start more and more people start coming here at New Park Street. He said, we had prayer meetings at New Park Street that moved our very souls. Every man seemed like a crusader besieging the New Jerusalem. Each one appeared to determine to storm the celestial city by the might of intercession. And soon the blessing came upon us in such an abundance that we had not room to receive it. That was Spurgeon's testimony. His biographer, Louis Drummond, would say it this way. He said, the primary foundation stone of Spurgeon's success rested on the sacrificial, fervent prayers of the New Park Street people. They were a faithful group of interceding Christians. Young Spurgeon inherited their blessed legacy. Moreover, that spirit of prayer continued through the years 
of the Metropolitan Tabernacle Ministry. That is when they changed buildings. The anecdote of Charles Haddon Spurgeon taking visitors through the Metropolitan Tabernacle and showing them the prayer room in the basement, remarking, here's the powerhouse, has often been repeated, but it's apocryphal. The real story is that the prayer meeting was held upstairs on Monday nights and some 3,000 people attended. Think about that. Prayer meeting. Every Monday night, 3,000 in attendance. People having a heart to pray, having this vigorous faith. Why did people pray? They knew their dependence upon the Lord. They believed that God would be gracious to bless them if they but prayed. And the large attendance of the prayer meeting is just an indicator of their faith. They want to come and pray. And they stepped out in faith and God did great things among them. Still, Spurgeon's having an impact today. Now, certainly the Metropolitan Tabernacle had many things going for them. The giftedness of Spurgeon was second bar none throughout all of history, I would argue. The momentum of the ministry, which only encourages more and more to come, was on their side as well. And yet, they made conscious attempts, even in the midst of great success, to say, we need to make sure that this ministry isn't based upon us. It is based upon the Lord, where 3,000 would come and pray. And might it be that our ministry doesn't flourish in the same way because I know my giftedness is not their Spurgeon's. But in some measure, perhaps we don't have faith. Maybe we won't pray together. Maybe we're relying on our past success. Maybe we're relying on our own strength or our own resources. Maybe we need to realize that we need to have faith. And in our faith, maybe that's a path to ministry flourishing here in greater ways. I, I don't know about you. I have a a great heart to see our church continue to grow and expand and impact and see many people saved. Maybe it has to do with us praying and pleading and besieging, right? Heaven, the new Jerusalem, pleading God would show His grace. You think about your own ministry. All of you have ministries. Whether it's the church ministry, whether it's ministry in your family. You parents have ministry to your children. I don't care how old they are. You have ministry to your children. And maybe it just might be matters in your own family are struggling because of lack of faith. As Paul Miller said in the, A Praying Life, which we've gone through this past year in our small groups, he said, I do my best parenting by prayer. And just that's the idea that I, that I pray and as I seek the Lord, God will do more to change your children's hearts than you ever will do. God will help in your parenting far more than your skills as a parent will do. And might it be that your own lack of faith in trusting the Lord is the cause of many family problems. Might it be your outreach to your neighbors lacks because you lack faith. You're praying for your neighbors. You're seeking them. Are you loving them? Are you serving them? Might it be that you have little fruit in your life because you have little faith? Might it be that your best plan this morning is to say, I do believe, Lord. Help my unbelief. That's the point of my message today. It's really to get you to the point where you would pray this prayer, help my unbelief. And say, what's the drum? If I ask some of you children after church, what was my message about? You say, help my unbelief. Right? I want to hear those words. Help my unbelief. That's what all this is about. And the ministry will flourish where faith is there. Now, before we move on to past verse 19, I want you to notice the anguish of Jesus because this is touching. This is a reason why we should pray this prayer even. He says, 
O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? He's using these words, how long? Now, the psalmist often use these words. It, it's, a, it's an expression of, of despair. It's, a, it's, a, it's an expression of just utter destitute frustration and help. Oh, how long, O Lord? Psalm 13, verse 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Just difficulties. And, and God is gone. And he's just, the psalmist saying, how long, God, are you going to be gone? When are you going to return to help me? Or Psalm 79, How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Right When the judgment of God is coming upon the people of God, then they're being chastened for their sin. Are you going to be angry forever? Are you going to show us your compassion that we know you're going to be? How long are we going to face your wrath, O Lord? Or Psalm 94, verse 3, How long shall the wicked, O Lord, how long shall the wicked exult? There are wicked people all around. And how long shall they exult and boast in their own pride? How long, O Lord, until you show what is really the reality in life? That's usually how this words, these words, how long, are, are used. God in His long-suffering and His forbearance tolerates the wicked, destroy, delays His judgment. But the psalmist runs out of patience and cries to the Lord, frustrated the lack of justice, in agony because of the decay of the Lord. And yet here in verse 19, however, think about this, it's totally flipped. It's not people running out of patience before a, a long-suffering God it is the long-suffering God running out of patience with people. Jesus is frustrated at the lack of faith among His disciples. He's given them many reasons to, faith, to believe, right? His miracles, His teaching, transfiguration, all these reasons just, just pile up and, and yet they're not believing. And He says, how long shall I be with you? And I just say this, if there's any reason why we ought to believe that the, and trust in the Lord, it is, it is right here in verse 19. Let us not try the patience of God with unbelief. Let us pray rather, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. The fruit of that is then the ministry will flourish. Well, let's move on. The actual healing of the boy. At the end of verse 19, Jesus says, bring him to me. And then verse 20, they brought the boy to him, and when he saw him, immediately the Spirit throws him into a convulsion, and falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. Now, it's no wonder that in the presence of Jesus, this demonic spirit reared its ugly head, once again taking control of this boy. The demon full knew, knew full well what was happening. He knew in whose presence he was, and the demon threw the boy into convulsions. Jesus was not alarmed by this. I mean, he almost... It's verse 21. He's like nonchalantly. He's just saying gently, probably, quietly. Hmm. Just watching him roll around. Just like Jesus. He's not just jumping in there. He's just kind of surveying the scene. He says, how, how long has this been happening to him? And the father re- replies quickly and says, from childhood. And then he explains more in verse 22. It often throws him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Right? Just describe the the situation and the, the circumstance. And then he made his request, right? But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And, and the request was a great request, actually. This take pity it makes it be, means have mercy. Be merciful to us, O Lord. The, the father recognized he had no leverage in demanding Jesus heal this boy. So he just requested for mercy. And, and furthermore, the father didn't tell Jesus how to help him, right? He didn't say, oh, heal me and do this and do this and do this. He didn't have a grocery list 
for Jesus at all. Rather, he simply said, just help us. Help us however you see fit. What, what a great prayer to pray. When you're in a difficult situation, difficult environment, you might have your laundry list of every way that you see how God ought to satisfy all your needs. I think better just say, God, help me. And, and He'll help you in the way actually that's better than your laundry list of ways that you think is how He should help because He'll help in the best way. And Jesus heard that request. And the second half of the request was great and wonderful, but the first half was bad. But if you can do anything, if you can, Jesus, if you can, of course you can, right? Jesus is the shining one, the radiant one, the glorious, majestic one. Of course Jesus can do this. Now, it's interesting. The Father didn't know these things about Jesus, what just took place. And yet Jesus um, maybe assumed and held the guy responsible that he should be able to know that Jesus could do all these things. Jesus felt the man knew enough not to question the power of Jesus in any way. And yet, don't we often doubt? Don't we often say, God, if you can do this? Aren't we often there? That's why I think this prayer is so good, because we can relate. We doubt the power of God to move people. And yet, Jesus affirms this to His Father. He to this Father. He says in verse 23, all things are possible to him who believes. And this is one of those amazing statements in the Bible that Jesus makes regarding faith. John's Gospel is flooded with them. Like for instance, John 14, 13, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Or John 15, 7, if you abide in me, my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. John 15, 16, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, He may give it to you. Later in Mark's Gospel, we'll see a similar statement. Look over at chapter 11, verse 22. It's talking about the fig tree, and Jesus says, have faith in God, right? Believe in God. This is to the disciples who still don't get it. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and be cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, therefore it will be granted him. Therefore, I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted to you. Now, there's context all around that verse that we get to will help explain some of those things, but, but don't miss, first of all, the connection between faith and prayer. Is that, that Jesus equates in many ways praying and believing, right? If you believe in me, if you ask in faith, I mean, Prayer is merely the expression of faith. It's the outward manifestation of faith. And when you offer a prayer in faith, Jesus says you can have the assurance of its answer. If you ask in the name of Jesus, if you're abiding in God, if it is according to His will, if you're submitting to Him, then those things take place. And let's not shrink back from the outstanding promises of God. And when Jesus said this, the Father seized upon that statement all things are possible to him who believes. Yes, I believe. I'm there. I'm one. And, but then he recognizes how little his faith is. Help my unbelief. Help, help my faith to, to grow. That was okay for Jesus. He says, okay. In verse 25, we see Jesus healing this man. When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, 
In other words, all these people that were arguing, he's originally talking about his disciples, and the man comes over, and then everyone's there. In front of everybody, full display, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. And after crying out and throwing him into convulsions, it came out, and the boy became so much like a corpse, most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, raised him up, and he got up. Jesus merely spoke the word to the boy, and the boy was healed. His time had come to glorify the Lord. And now comes my second point by way of application. Help my unbelief that hurts would heal. Because fundamentally, that's what's happening with this father and this son. You may have also had a family dealing with difficult circumstances of everything there. I mean, think about the reality of having a son, a boy, can't speak, can't hear, constantly throwing himself into pain, constantly in danger of drowning. The, the toll on the family would have been immense as he always would have needed to be watched. Mothers, siblings, fathers, maybe uncles, maybe grandparents, constant watch on the little boy lest he hurt himself. And with the word, Jesus healed their hurts. All of them, the whole family, their hurts were healed. And Jesus may well be standing by ready to heal your hurts as well. I can't help but to think that there's some hurts in your own households that are caused by lack of faith. Husbands and wives, maybe you lack the faith to read the Bible together. And reading the Bible together might be the very thing that helps solve some of those relational difficulties. Or maybe you don't have the faith to pray together, husband and wife, and the mere act of praying together would help heal some of those strifes and contentions in marriage. Wives, I know a lot of you are here without your husbands. Um, maybe you lack the faith for God to change your husband. I know many of you do have faith and you're believing and trusting. I say, continue to go. This is a great prayer to pray. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. But, but God, you'd come and, 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 and get to my husband and change his heart. Parents, maybe you lack your faith trying to, lack faith trying to control your children rather than letting God work in their hearts to guide them in his way. Parents, maybe you lack the faith to trust the Lord with your finances jobs or unemployment. Because or... those are real hurts. And maybe these are the kind of hurts that God can heal in our lives today. And they're hurts for all of us, apart from the family even. Right? Maybe they're relationships. And rather, rather than praying to God to help restore something, you just try to solve it on your own and the conflict continues. And maybe you dwell upon your past or what happened or didn't happen to you and you can't get around that to just believe in God's got a different plan for you for the future. <clears throat> maybe you have physical illnesses. And maybe you've trusted the doctors rather than trusting the Lord. You know, I've had a problem sometime with my, my legs, my calf for some reason. I can't, I, can't, I can't explode anymore like I used to. And I've talked to my dad, I've gone to the doctor. It really struck me recently. About a month ago, I said, you know what? I haven't prayed for my legs I just, um, I just, I haven't. It's not a great problem. I mean, I can run, but I know there's some soreness there. But it really struck me that, you know what, I'm just trusting in my own. Rather than saying, God, why can you heal me? And maybe you've got some physical illnesses like that. And I'm not saying don't go to doctors. I mean, go to them, okay? 
Take your medicines, right? Take whatever you can. But, but realize that, that God can do what doctors can't do. There may be other hurts in your life if you know anything about how you're trusting the Lord to help heal your hurts. Because Jesus is able to restore marriages. He's able to bring back rebellious children. He's able to provide finances. He's able to mend relationships. Able to clean our slate. Able to heal. And perhaps you need to pray today, Lord, I believe. What? Help my unbelief. Now also, I need to say a word about healing here. It may well be that you have a, a hurt that God's not going to heal. Alright? I mean, we live in a different time than when Jesus was there amongst the disciples doing this massive healing and, and you know, raising people from the dead and healing blind people with the touch. And maybe that now is not the time. Remember Paul's affliction? He had a thorn in his flesh. He prayed three times to the Lord. And here was Paul who did massive miracles. Prayed to the Lord and God said, Nope, I'm not going to take away that thorn. So here he had a hurt. I mean, a thorn hurts, right? Every time you walk, whether it's on your, your foot, it hurts every time you walk. And whether it's a metaphorical thorn in the flesh, maybe it's a demon, maybe it's um, some kind of oppression, maybe it's people coming, it's whatever. Some kind of hurt was in his life, and he prayed, God, relieve me. God, help me. He got three times, and three times his answer was no, and God said this, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. So don't think that every hurt isn't healed because of lack of faith. In fact, even in Second Timothy, Paul says that... Um, Trophimus, I have left sick at Miletus. You've got to be astonished at that. Here's Paul who's healing. He, he's, Trophimus was there, and he said, I left him sick to go on with my ministry. Well, could Paul have healed? Well, certainly, but it's not in every circumstance as well. Also, even Paul talks about some kind of bodily ailment in the Galatians chapter 4, about the reason why he came to the Galatian people in the first place. He had some kind of ailment, and and you think about Paul, can he heal himself? Well, certainly God did, but it wasn't the time. And maybe for your hurts, it's not the time. There are times when God brings hurts to help us. There are times when God brings hurts to help us. To help us. He prunes the tree that we might bear more fruit. And with Paul, the hurt came and the thorn in the flesh to humble him, that he might be weak because power is perfected through weakness. And it might be that God has brought a hurt in your life to weaken you so that you don't trust in your own strength, so you trust in the strength that God provides. But, here's what I'd say. Even that may be the case. You may be convinced it's a case in your hurt. Never fail to believe that Jesus could take that hurt totally away. Never fail to believe that Jesus couldn't cure you totally. Trust in Him. Believe in Him. Faith. In Jesus is faith that says He is able. Don't be like this man. If you can heal me, because He can. I'd rather say, I know you can. Please be merciful to me. But here's what I say. Why to believe that? Because I want you then to trust that, that the reason why you're not being healed of your hurts is not because of your lack of faith, but it's because of His sovereign design that He's not going to be inhibited by your lack of faith. Rather, He is going to say, you know what, I'm not going to heal you because i got a greater design. Let's, let it be God's choice and not our lack of faith. You remember when Jesus went to Nazareth, His hometown? He and His disciples traveled there, and rather than receiving Jesus and trusting Him, the, the people of Nazareth scoffed at Him. 
Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And we're told that the people of Nazareth took offense at him. What was the result? Mark chapter 6, verse 5, Jesus could do no miracle there except he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And we're told that Jesus wondered at their unbelief. Let not God wonder at our unbelief. But if our hurts aren't being healed, let God say, no, my grace is sufficient for you. So help my unbelief that hurts would heal. Well, let's move on to Jesus and the disciples. Verse 28, When Jesus came into the house, His disciples began questioning Him privately, saying, Why could we not drive it out? This is a pressing question in the mind of the disciples. They'd healed before. Why couldn't they heal this boy this time? Then Jesus, why is it that you come along? You just say the word and it's healed. Why, why couldn't we say those same words? They're thinking, what's up with that? And so the first chance that they had to talk to Jesus, they asked Him. I mean, here it was privately, right? When He came into the house. They're not going to ask Him publicly. That would be shameful, right? Why can't we do it? That's not the time. But the time had come when they were finally alone and, and they asked this question and Jesus said, this kind cannot come out but by anything but prayer. Here's the key. Jesus said that His disciples were prayerless. So I think here's why you need to pray this prayer. Help my unbelief that I would pray. Because if these kinds don't come out because of lack of faith, really the prayer is is interconnected in many ways with faith. And rather than praying and trusting the Lord's power to work through them, the disciples have figured it all out. I think they were trusting in their own strength. They'd done this before. They'd do it again. I mean, they had healed many, right? They knew all about the power of ministry, how it works. Maybe even thinking it works like magic. They say these magic words, I, I command you to be gone from Him or out of Him or in the name of Jesus, I command you to be... And it was working, and it was working, and it was working. I mean, can you imagine saying that the first time? Jesus says, well, you just command that demon to go out in the name of Jesus. You're like, never done it before. Um, okay. I command you to go out in the name of Jesus. Pretty soon it goes out. And you're like, oh. And the next time maybe there's some trepidation, but, but after a while it gets to be no big deal. I command you to leave out in the name of Jesus. What happened? Your faith is gone. Right? Those who walk on coals, first time is not much of a problem because it's your sweat underneath your feet that keeps keeps uh, some coolness there. And so you're real nervous. Like, I'm not going to walk on those coals. But you're real nervous. And so you can walk across and you're okay. But what happens when you've done it once or twice? You're like, ah, I can do this. Whoa! Because I'm not nervous anymore. There's no faith. There's no trust. And so likewise here, I think that they got this out. They didn't have to pray. They didn't have to trust. They, did, they didn't have to rely upon God's power. They'd done this so many times before they could do it on their own. And this, they're like Samson with his hair cut off. Remember when the Philistines came upon Samson? Right? He went out confident. Yeah, I can take these guys. He didn't know that Delilah had cut his hair. Because he'd taken them so many times before, but he didn't have his hair this time. And he was captured by the Philistines. They gouged out his eyes, placed him, bound him in prison. And such were the disciples. They're prayerless and weak. They didn't have prayer on their side. And they just went to conquer out. It's not going to happen. Instead, they were weak and powerless. And they didn't even know it. Just like Samson. But there's good news here, all right? Because Samson's hair started growing when he was in the prison. And with 
his hair growing back, he regained his strength. He braced himself against those middle pillars which held the, the whole supporting structure of that house where all those Philistines were. And he, he broke those pillars and the house came tumbling down. He killed at his death more than those Philistines he killed in his life. And the disciples could pray again. And they could renew their strength. And there would be another day where there would be another demon-possessed little boy where they could put his hand on him and out the evil spirit would go from him. And you know what? They did. The book of Acts is filled with stories and amazing things accomplished by the hands of the, the disciples. At the time, even at times, their, their miracles compared equally to the miracles of Jesus, right? Healed a crippled man, Acts chapter 3. Raising Tabitha, Peter did, from the dead. In fact, Acts 19 says God was performing extra miracles by the hand of Paul extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick, and diseases left them, and evil spirits went out from them. I mean, such was the power of, Christ, uh, of Paul, such the power of God. You remember that just, just even touching the garment of Jesus was something that could heal people. And so likewise, Paul had this garment, and he'd pass it out, and they just touch that garment, they're being healed. I mean, just, just miracles equated with the miracles of Jesus in many ways. And I believe the reason they were able to do so is because they never lost the fact where their power came from. They knew it came from the Lord. Uh, another parallel thing through the book of Acts is you see that these people prayed in the book of Acts. They were not prayerless people. The early church was. After Jesus ascended to heaven, they gathered the upper room and were, here it says, Acts 1.14, with one mind, were continually devoting themselves to prayer. And they did so. Jesus was with them for 40 days after His Resurrection, the ascension went up, the Holy Spirit came down, the Pentecost, after 50 days, Penta means five, 50 days, and they were there for 10 days, continually devoting themselves to prayer. It's all the people of the early church, the early followers of Jesus. And then the Spirit came to send upon them in Acts chapter 2, but they didn't forget where their power had come from. They knew their power from the Lord. They continued to pray. The testimony of the early church, Acts 2.42, they continually devoted themselves, the apostles' teaching, breaking of bread, fellowship, and to prayer. They continually devoted themselves to prayer. The apostles knew the importance of prayer as leaders in the church. They said, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Prayer meetings were often in the early church. They prayed for, together when Peter and John were freed from prison. They prayed together after James was killed and Peter was on the way next. They had a prayer meeting at John Mark's house, the author of this Gospel. They prayed together when they sought a vision for the Lord, just saying, what shall we do next? And that's when God says, set apart from me Barnabas and Saul to the work I've called them to, to going out as missionaries. The missionary movement began by prayer. After establishing churches, Acts 14, they prayed. When elders got together, they prayed. Personal prayers in the church were abundant. We read of Peter going on the housetop to pray. When Saul was converted, his testimony was that he is praying. It's no wonder the early church experienced so much power because they were praying people. Help my unbelief that I would pray. Prayer is a manifestation of our faith. And I think it works this way. When we pray, you know what? We're not doing anything else. You ever thought about that? Now, you can pray always and you can be doing some things while you're praying, but, but that whole statement of the apostles said we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. They said we can't serve the tables. I mean, it's a good thing to serve the tables of the widows, but we need to pray and devote ourselves to the ministry of the Word. And if you're going to pray all the time, well, they could do that as well. But then, no, they said we need to have seasons and times where we are apart just praying by ourselves. And when you do that, 
You're doing nothing. You're not scheming. You're not thinking. You're not worrying. You're not planning. You're just saying, God, here's something that's bigger than me. I know I can't do it. I know I can work and work and work now for the next three hours. It's not going to be done unless you come and you help. And I, and I will make efforts, God, but I need you and I need your help to come. I, I'm waiting for you to act, God. I, I need you to act. Will you act? Or we're going to do this thing tomorrow, right? We're, we're out here with the, the disciples and the people and, and we need, God, your help with this or we need your help with that. God, will you come and, and, and store it up then in prayer? God delights to, to answer the prayers of people to, to help hurts, to prosper ministry. And you can say this, help my unbelief that I would pray. Because when you believe and trust in God, you will pray. And I just say this, you want to pray more? You want to pray more? Pray this prayer. Help my unbelief. And if you have greater faith, God will induce you to, to pray more. Well, let's go to Him in prayer. Father, I pray that even here we'd see the power of prayer. That faith and prayer moves mountains. That even prayer moves people. I pray we'd be like Hudson Taylor who just determined and decreed that he would see his ministry flourish as a way to exalt you by showing that prayer moves people. Prayer alone moves people. As prayer is an expression of faith, God, I pray that we would believe and I pray that we would believe and that this ministry would flourish in greater ways than it has before. Thank you for the ways that it has, especially even this past year, and, and really having a place where we can reach out to unbelievers, especially here in this neighborhood. We thank you for that. We pray you would abound. More people who don't know you today, God, knowing you through the result of our testimony here at this church, I, I pray that. I pray that often, God. Pray that you convert people who we know we're sharing the gospel with. Pray that our ministry would flourish. I pray that our hurts would heal, God. Being a pastor, I see many, many hurts of many, many people inside the church, and then as I see them outside the church, I can only imagine what's going on. Sometimes things are shared as people find out I'm a pastor and would pray that you would, by faith, heal hurts in our lives. God, our world is messed up. Our world is um, corrupted by sin. It's caused all sorts of problems, all sorts of headaches, all sorts of trials and tribulations and pressures. And I pray, O oh Lord, by Your faith, by Your grace, You be merciful to us as we believe that You can and we see You do. Pray for families. Pray for marriages. Pray for friends. Pray for the unconverted. I, I pray that all of us, God, we'd see the things restored. And I pray, O oh Lord, that we would be a praying people. God, as we have started from the set from the start, just to establish a prayer meeting when everyone can be there Sunday morning, I pray, Lord, that You would increase that time as an expression of our faith. Thank You today that we prayed and prayed and prayed. It was difficult to stop. I pray that we'd be like the people of New Park Street to storm the celestial city. God, longing for Your mercy and grace to come upon us. I pray that this short prayer might be the prayer that all of us pray this week. 
continually help my unbelief. God, because we do need Your help. Let us not think, O oh Lord, that we can conjure up this faith in and of ourselves. It's not as if we try hard enough we can really believe. God, it's You who's got to enliven that within us. You're the one that provides saving faith because we're saved by grace through faith. And that faith is not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. And so likewise, continuing faith, continuing trust is a, a gift of grace from You. And we plead, O oh God, that You would grant us more faith. I think mostly, Lord, that You would shine upon us and see us a believing people. A trusting people. Trusting in You, not trusting in our own strength. Cursed is the man who trusts in himself. God, but may we trust in You. Be the great physician of our souls. The great stirrer of His ministry. The great guider behind everything. May we always prioritize our prayer. So that when Your blessing comes, it's not to us, O oh Lord. It's not to us, but it's to You and it's to Your name that glory comes. Father, we just place these things in Your hands and I plead for all of us that You would increase our faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.